Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to Extension 720. We've done occasional programs on architecture, and we've gone through the recent edifices that have arisen in the city of Chicago and judged some to be wanting and some to be offensive and some few to be uh, majestic or at least uh, tolerable. We are tonight going to be talking with a critic of the worst in modern architecture and also an appreciator of some of the best in contemporary building. Our guest is a distinguished academic, John Silver, who was for many years the president of Boston University. And he's the author of a brand new book titled Architecture of the Absurd, How Genius, and that's a genius in quotes, How Genius Disfigured a Practical Art. And we'll talk about a number of disfiguring buildings and a few that John Silver properly commends. And we'll ask why and how architecture has gone wrong in this age. And has it gone wrong together with all sorts of other things in art that have gone wrong in other categories of art? Uh, those matters under discussion directly after the update on this evening's news from Roger Best. And tonight we turn once again to the most public of all the arts, architecture. And we are joined by an eminent academic and a philosopher by training who is also a very interesting commentator on the public art and the way in which it has been misused in our time. My guest is John Silber, who is uh, the former president, and he was that for many years, of Boston University, and now ranks as President Emeritus. And he's the author of a, a new book, which is a great delight, uh, and uh, it states strong opinions, which is what we would expect from John Silber. And those opinions, I think, are critical and corrective of some of the excesses of modern architecture. The title of the book is Architecture of the Absurd, How Genius, and very importantly, genius is in quotes, How Genius Disfigures a Practical Art. John Silver, good evening. How are you? Well, I'm fine, and I'm delighted to uh, have a chance to talk with you. I should make clear to our listeners that you will sound as if you're in the studio, but in fact, you are in the studios of the station at Boston University, and we're talking on an ISDN line. And um, one of the one of the locales that you deal with in this book, which is copiously illustrated as well in a very valuable way, one of the locales is the very campus of Boston University. Yes, uh, the, the campus of Boston University in the 60s, that was about 10 years before I got there, I thought it was disfigured seriously by uh, Joseph Louis Sert, who was the protege of Le Corbusier. Uh, Le Corbusier, you may recall, I came up with a fantastic idea of redesigning Algiers, and he was just going to scrape away this Kasbah and the whole yes. city and impose his, his modern structures. Uh, and uh, this highly dictatorial man said that the plan must rule. Well, uh, all of that arrogance of his and that dictatorial opposer uh, uh, that characterized him was picked up by, by Cert. So Cert comes into Boston University uh, and builds a, a library with the entrance to the Northeast, and uh, those who don't don't know Boston uh, must uh, should be told, I guess, that the storms, the terrible Atlantic storms in the winter, come from the Northeast with driving snow and driving rain. That's what in New England they call the nor'easter. That's right. So we had to close the we had to close the uh, hmm. a, a door, uh, and uh, I had when I got there, I had to build a new uh, a new entrance on the south side. Uh, he also put a a great patio in the middle of our student union. Uh, and, of course, uh, ex except for a couple of months in the summer when it was too hot to sit in, 
Uh, it was simply a swimming pool or a, or a place to gather snow in the wintertime, and it leaked into the floors below. We spent about $100,000 a year trying to, trying to repair it, and uh, I, I decided to hire an architect to see if he couldn't engineer around the building, and we turned that into a huge uh, ballroom for about 1,500 people, uh, and uh, the roof over the ballroom sheds water and sheds snow, so we have virtually no maintenance, and we made something useful out of it. But uh, but Carbusier's uh, uh, mentor, Siegfried Gideon, who'd, who'd written Space, Time, and Architecture, praised the book by saying that the farther away Sir got from the Mediterranean, the more Mediterranean feeling there was in his work. And he thought it was just wonderful that he had this uh, Spanish patio right in the middle of a building in the Northeast. Well, we're dealing here with the arrogance of the... Uh, of the artistic architect, and we need to talk about that a good deal. I should make clear to all of our listeners that uh, this is an illustrated radio program. For those who have quick access to their computers, uh, go now to our regular uh, program blog, miltsfile.com, miltsfile.com, as simple as that, and you'll find a number of illustrations. Indeed, here's the, uh, the opening comment uh, for our show tonight. These are some of the architectural monstrosities that we will be discussing tonight with John Silver, author of, Arch the, of Architecture of the Absurd. Uh, and uh, the first one we've got here is the original patio of the George Sherman Union. And then, in fact, scrolling down uh, to the fourth one in line, we have the plan for uh, uh, Le Corbusier's plan for the rebuilt uh, uh, Algiers. Uh, the reach built Casablanca, which was essentially to rip down the whole city and put up one of his uh, walled villages. Uh, so anybody who's uh, listening, if you want to see what we're talking about, quickly go to the website, miltsfile.com, and look at what we have. Now, as I look at the original patio of the George Sherman Union, it looks uh, simply ugly, quite apart from being dysfunctional. Yeah, it's that too. Uh, so you inherited that one. Now, the next one we have on the website, and it's also Grace's, if Gracious is the proper uh, term, the cover of your book, is uh, something by a man who's left a very strong imprint on Chicago as well, Frank Gehry. But this is the Stata Center at, this is at MIT in Cambridge, is that right? That's right, the Stata Center. And, Stata, uh, you say it, all uh, right. It, uh, it was supposed to cost $100 million, and they had to add a $65 million garage. But despite that, they had an overrun of $150 million come up with a, with a total cost of $315 million for that building. You know, as I look at it, John, what came, what came immediately to mind when I first saw it on the cover of your new book is the expressionist design that flourished in the Weimar Republic between the wars in Germany. And I think particularly of the film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, where all of the buildings and all of the structures are askew and leaning in odd directions. This is a leaning building, leaning in four or five different directions at once. That's right, it is. And, and uh, it also gives you the effect of leaning in some of the places inside. For example, there's a building that is specifically designed by Gary to be visually disorienting. So if you just use your eyes, you become nauseated when you, when you walk into or you sit in that room. And uh, the faculty, who have a lot of wit and intelligence, refer to it as the vomitorium. Oh, my. Uh, it, uh, it can't be used. Uh, it's, just, it's just a wasted space. He also had the arrogance to say how scientists should work. 
He said they behave like orangutans. They go up into the top of the trees to, to work, and then they come down uh, to socialize when they eat. And so uh, he wanted to break that habit, and he, he designed the offices with no partitions. Well, these people are doing a lot of uh, top-secret work. So they insisted on having partitions in their offices so that the offices were closed, and he put it in with glass. Well, glass is still disconcerting because uh, you can look right through it and see what's going on inside. And also, if a, if a person is really trying to think, he's continued to distract it by people walking by. Well, now let's begin to talk about the modern architect, and particularly the, um, the genius architect, genius uh, always in quotes, uh, the one who gets tremendous deference from those who commission the work. It also gets tremendous fees. Uh, they seem to, in the case of Gary and others that uh, one reads about in your book, they seem to have a tremendous arrogance and readiness to reorganize the whole world to their uh, conception or misconception. Would the same have been true of some of the great architects of earlier time, say of Bernini or of Palladio? Uh, what do we know about what they, what they imposed upon their patrons? Well, I, I think they took very seriously Vesuvius three essentials of architecture, firmness, commodity, and delight. Mm. Uh, firmness referred to the soundness of the engineering. And you don't, you don't fool around uh, uh, with, with a, a dome like the dome on St. Peter's if you don't know your engineering because the thing would fall. Uh, and uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, the way in which they also were concerned with commodiousness has to do with the arrangement of space. Now, if you take the, uh, the the Church of the Rendatore by Palladio, that's a, that's a that's a beautiful church. It had the firmness, the commodity, uh, and and the delight that were the three essentials of Vitruvius. That's also pictured in your new book, though it's not on our uh, website tonight. Yes, but, and, uh, and uh, those those structures I don't I don't even suggest absurdity. They they meet the needs of those who use it. Uh, the, uh, the 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 church fulfilled its its uh, sacerdotal function, uh, and uh, it also was a secure uh, church that shed water. Uh, it, it provided shelter. Uh, it it has managed to last for several hundred years without any cracks and any disfigurement. So uh, I think if you go, if you go back there, uh, if if you go to Florence and see the famous dome in Florence. Uh, that's a magnificent structure, and without sound engineering, it couldn't have been possible. Or if you go to Venice, here's what John Ruskin says in The Stones of Venice as he lays down the essential requirements for good building. He says, we require from buildings, as from men, two kinds of goodness. First, the doing their practical duty well, and that they be graceful and pleasing in doing it, which last is itself another form of duty. Well, the sense of subordination of the architecture of the client is something that the iconic architects, the ones I'm referring to, don't know anything about. These these people, for, for example, Gary, I think, put it very well. They think of themselves as sculptors, not, not as architects. Uh, and there's a profound difference between a work of fine art uh, and, a, and, a, and a work of architecture. Uh, nobody has to live in a sculpture or in a painting or in a piece of music. You can look at it, you can hear it, or you can ignore it. Exactly. But often, if you're in a building, you, you, you are, are circumscribed by that building. It is the most public of the arts. I've often made that point when we've done programs on architecture, and we've had with us uh, various architects and also 
some architectural critics, that architecture is the most public of all the arts, and I can avoid a painting or, um, or music that I dislike, or I can choose not to go to a play that I know I won't like, but I cannot avoid some of the excrescences that rise even now on the, uh, on the skyline of Chicago. <laughs> well, you know, Gary has, has made the statement that there are sorts of rules, I'm quoting it right now, sorts of rules about architectural expressions. They have to fit into a certain channel. And then he said, screw that. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't mean anything. I'm going to do what I do best. Uh, and uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't care for any of the essentials that, that Vitruvia spoke of or that responsible architects have understood. Now, John, you are, uh, you are certainly uh, not uh, too critical or rejecting of um, a major figure in the history of modern architecture and in the history of Chicago architecture, namely Mies van der Rohe. But I want to tell you a story. I have this from one of his original students here in Chicago, a senior architect, who says that when Mies um, designed those two apartment houses, the black-clad apartment houses, right on the uh, right on Lakeshore Drive, right, uh, which are famous uh, uh, in his roster of achievement, uh, some of his assistants came to him after a year or so and said the people who are living there uh, are really complaining a great deal. They find it very drafty and uncomfortable and various other complaints, and it seems sort of too barren, and, uh, and they certainly don't like to use all of them, the very same uh, drapes on the windows, drapes that were required by Mies uh, as one of the conditions of uh, how to uh, live in that building, to which Mies said they'll have to learn how to get used to it. But he said that from the precincts of his baronial apartment in an old Beaux-Arts apartment house built uh, 75 years earlier, in Chicago, in which he lived and quite enjoyed himself. Yes, well, that again is that arrogance that you find in Frank Lloyd Wright and other architects who think that the client is supposed to conform yeah. to whatever their taste requires, instead of saying that they must subordinate themselves to their client. It, it's it's the difference between a practical art and a fine art, and of course, with these with these celebrated architects, many of them are simply. Uh, uh, dictators who haven't learned how to take over the control of the state, uh, but managed to take over the lives of people who live in the buildings that they design. But uh, uh, Mies van der Rohe has has done some some truly magnificent. Well, I know you admire some of his work, certainly, uh, and you're right to admire the Seagram's Building in New York, surely. Yeah, uh, and and you know, a, a, a Japanese architect named Maki has, has pointed out that since modern architecture. Uh, has rejected ornamentation. Uh, the the only way you you create distinctive modern architecture is by the the cleanness and uh, and detailed design, and by the the correct choice of materials. And I think that's a very that's a very good point. Uh, and these people very often don't use the right materials, and they don't care about what happens. I think the way Gary has has splattered these these sealed forms everywhere he can. Uh, uh, in a, in a yes. way that's often ridiculous and often blinding to other people uh, is totally irresponsible. The very matter I want to take up with you next. We're about to pause for some commercials, but I direct the attention of our listeners, if they're at their computers, to the last picture we've got on this roster, namely the picture of the uh, Pritzker Pavilion in Millennium Park. That, of course, designed by Gary with those flying odd steel forms above the, uh, the band shell. And then I direct their attention as well 
to something which I had never known about, John, before reading your book. It's one of the silliest looking buildings I've ever seen. Also designed by Gary. And again, it has a lot of that weird, uh, 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 odd-formed steel kind of piled on top in no particular uh, uh, mode of rhyme or reason. This is the Richard, Richard B. Fisher Center for the Performing Arts at Bard College in New York. We'll talk about those and talk about the strange flying steel forms with which he clads the roofs of uh, just about everything he does. Directly back to John Silver after we pause for these words. March and we return to conversation with John Silver, who is uh, President Emeritus of Boston University. In fact, he's uh, famous for having remade Boston University, taken it from sort of a second-tier university and put, put it right into the top rank uh, by strongly administering the place and by shaping it in, in a way that fitted his vision. And uh, we may later on talk about his philosophy of and his concern with the quality of American higher education. But right now, back to the buildings and the misbuilding that's been going on uh, in various places, not only in Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts, but surely here in Chicago. Uh, regular listeners right now who don't know much about architecture but know what they like have probably seen Millennium Park at the heart of downtown Chicago and thus have seen Frank Gehry's Pritzker Pavilion, which is designed as a great band shell. With all, how do you describe, John, uh, that kind of steel-clad, uh, odd, asymmetric roofing that he now specializes in? Well, I think uh, the, the the way in which the the, sh the shapes are, are 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 designed tells us something about it. Uh, Gary has a habit of taking a piece of paper and and uh, ho and folding it up and crinkling it in his hand. He throws it down on the table and then tells one of his assistants to get on the computer and figure out how to build something that looks like that. Now, th that sort of uh, accidental design in architecture, uh, there's 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 no oh no meaning uh, necessarily. I don't know. That was his method. So it's spontaneous architecture, is it? Well, very much of it is. It's, <laughs> it's like automatic writing with, uh, that some poets follow. Yeah. Where they just try to see what happens when they when they just go banging away on a typewriter and, and hoping something comes comes out that they can use. Well, before we come to Chicago and the Pritzker Pavilion, uh, let's go to uh, this other one pictured on our uh, blog site this very night. Miltsfile.com is how you get there, namely the Richard B. Fisher Center for the Performing Arts at Bard College. Oh, I've never seen anything really more ludicrous. I, I didn't know about this building until I read it, your book. It's a it's a perfectly prosaic little building, uh, clad with all of this these huge expanses of undulating steel. Uh, as I said, it, it has it has the look of a peasant's college. Yeah, a cottage. Instead of having thatched roof, it has a stainless steel roof. And if you if you walk around it. You find at the back of it, uh, it is 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 exposed, and all it is is a perfectly routine, ordinary building. Now you you ran a major university, Boston University. Uh, Leon Botstein has been the president of Bard College, just about as long as you ran Boston University. Yeah, he's supposed right. to be a fairly perspicacious fellow. He has ambitions in all directions. He's got a reputation now not only as a, a college administrator, but as a uh, as a conductor of a symphony orchestra. How in the world could he be talked into this by, by Frank Gehry? I don't know. I don't, I don't know how his board of trustees ever let him get away with it because you pay a huge amount of money for that uh, and, uh, and, and you get very little for it. This looks to me the ugliest academic building I have seen in all my long career as a professor. Well, it, it, it's, it's certainly in, in the race. Uh, it, it, may not be, it may not be the worst. I think the state of center 
can give it a run for its money. Uh, but but both of them are singularly ugly uh, and dysfunctional places. Now, the concert hall inside, which is perfectly ordinary, mm-hmm. um, may be quite satisfactory for Botstein's purposes. And I would assume that at that point, he asserted some authority as a musician to see to it that the acoustics were, were good. Uh, but uh, why, why clad this thing with all of this ridiculous uh, uh, and totally irrelevant uh, design? Now, the kind of the very same question be raised about the Pritzker Pavilion. Uh, I want to go directly to the Pritzker Pavilion. We've got to pause right now, however, for an update on the news, and then directly back to John Silver, and we go to uh, Millennium Park at the heart of Chicago. After the update, as delivered by Roger Bettis, our guest tonight on an ISDN line from uh, Boston is uh, the former president of and thus continuing as president emeritus of Boston University, John Silver, who is the author of the book published late last year, Architecture of the Absurd, how genius, quote, genius, disfigures a practical art. And uh, one such disfigurement, I am convinced, though lots of my Chicago friends would disagree with me, including Blair Kamen, the architecture critic of uh, the Chicago Tribune, who, as you know, has faulted you just a bit for your critical comments about uh, this building, namely Gary's Pritzker Pavilion here in Chicago. But again, it's all this flying pointless steel uh, which uh, calls attention to itself but has nothing to do with the function of the band shell and there's nothing and doesn't add any pleasure and anything uh, particularly fulfilling or ennobling or even interesting uh, to uh, the scene of Chicago. Uh, Why is it there? Well, it seems to me that in in part, uh, again, to to refer to this Japanese architect Maki, uh, uh, if this is going to be a modern piece of modern architecture, uh, what you have to say about all of the steel is that it is decoration. It, it is not essential to the structure. Uh, it is it is decoration. It's it's like the Villamina uh, architecture of, of the Victorian period in that in that Villamina p- period in Germany, where you put uh, statues of people. Uh, and and uh, big-shouldered men are holding up parapets, uh, and you have all kinds of of uh, fancy doc- documentation on well, the outside. Well, of course, the designers, of the, the designers of the Parthenon did the same, didn't they? Well, they, they, with, with rather better taste, uh, shall we say. Yeah. But but this, this Pritzker thing, uh, I I don't know. One thing I don't know is whether whether that those those shapes around uh, around the entrance of that. Uh, are are helpful in terms of the acoustics of the projecting of the sound of the architect, uh, the the orchestra to the audience. I can't see how they would be, though we are told by lots of people that the acoustics are great in that uh, Millennium Park location. But it, it seems to me that uh, I can't see how that. Well, it, it seems quite possible to me because if you if you look at those those uh, curvilinear steel things mm-hmm. over over the the proscenium that you have there. Uh, they they certainly are going to block and reflect that that sound uh, so. down and and out and and the the, the curved linear structures on the side may have the same effect. So uh, I don't I don't want to pontificate on that because I just don't know. I would want a, 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 the opinion of an acoustical engineer on on this. But so far as the design is, itself is concerned, uh, it just it just looks like uh, you know a, a crashed spaceship that that landed there and. And it's, it's all shiny, and, and it seems in pretty good shape, and there's no sign of blood or injury or anything like that around there. So maybe people, you know, just like to come in and, 
and and look at something that's that strange and 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 weird. It's uh, well, it's a it's a folly. It's either uh, an annoyance or an amusement. Yeah, well, I, I think that's I think that's right. But that it seems to me among Gary's works, that is one of the least harmful. Uh, it is it is one of the most benign of all the crazy which, things he's done. Which is the most harmful? Which is the worst? Which is the most harmful? I think the state of center at, at MIT that I put on the cover. I think yeah. that uh, that's that is just a classic. But of course, uh, also his his uh, uh, his Disney Center in Los Angeles, uh, which had uh, the total disregard for the neighborhood. That's, because, that's the one that abused the neighbors. Yeah. It, it, it Explain how that happened. 140 degrees uh, on the sidewalks by reflecting sunlight, and and a 15 degree increase in the apartment houses and condominiums that were across from it. And they had to sandblast the surface uh, to stop to reduce the reflectivity. But he, he, uh, the, the shocking thing is he did the same thing uh, in Minnesota uh, when, when he when he designed the uh, the Weissman uh, uh, Museum. And uh, it blinds it blinds people that are that are driving in the evening and going over the uh, the Washington Bridge. Uh, the, the man makes the same mistake over and over again. He started this with that art museum in Barcelona. Is that right? Uh, no, in, in Bilbao. Or Bilbao, rather, yeah. Right, and uh, that was the first time he had all this flag steel. And, and Bilbao, if you if you peel off all that steel, it's again just a perfectly ordinary straight building, and and it didn't work well as an art gallery until until uh, Sarah's huge metal works were were put into wow. it, and they occupy a great big space, uh, in a way that that no museum director would would care to dedicate to that subject, I would think, but it, but it sort of saved the uh, the exhibition part of the museum. It also crowds the water uh, in, in Bilbao, uh, and and it's it's sort of been abusive of the outside traffic uh, that uh, that the people there have enjoyed prior to its construction. Again, it's it's hostile to the neighborhood. It's hostile to human existence. Now here's another case, and again, uh, you write about this in the book. Uh, the book Architecture of the Absurd, and uh, it is pictured on our uh, on our blog site this very night. Again, I say to our listeners, if you want to see the pictures of these buildings we're talking about, go to our blog, miltsfile.com, and scroll down to the entrance to the Louvre in Paris. You know, John, in my early years uh, as an academic, uh, of course, I was in Paris a few times as a, as a very young man, and then uh, during the time I spent it, L'école des études en sciences sociales. Uh, I haunted the Louvre, and that was. Um, and everyone who's ever been to Paris has haunted the Louvre and has had tremendous pleasure therefrom. And even the the site one has in the great courtyard, as one enters, is uh, its formal uh, classic architecture that is not classic in the Greek sense, but classic in the sense of uh, French Renaissance, and it's extremely well-proportioned and just very, very affecting. And then they decided to improve things. They commissioned I.M. Pai, a Japanese origin, is he? But an American architect yeah. to, um, or rather Chinese origin, I guess, but an American architect to um, do something about the entrance. And we have that pyramid rising out of the courtyard and blocking the full view of the facade of the building. And most people commended that and commend it to this day as just a wonderful architectural invention combining uh, classic and modern forms uh, with sort of a 
an intrinsic harmonious effect. I don't find it anything of the sort, nor do you. No, I think that uh, uh, I think that it was a great idea on his part uh, to to see if he couldn't uh, uh, create a new entrance to the Louvre. That underground entrance that that he designed, I think, was a ten strike. He got that, I think, just right. But uh, there was no reason to put that that uh, pyramid on top of it, uh, or if he was going to have the pyramid, then why not move it 200 feet to the west so that it's on the other side of the street, uh, and it doesn't in any way interfere with the perception of that of that glorious 17th century courtyard. Now, um, most of the people who compliment it say, well, this was his purpose. His purpose was to uh, to really. Uh, give you a shock to have a, to create a tension between these things. And of course, that's been a very popular notion in architecture and among architectural critics. To shock. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Herbert Mushamp, the former architecture critic of the New York Times, said, and I'm quoting, the ideal of not pleasing yeah. is fundamental to modern art and modern criticism. Now, that's, that's just perverse. And then John Rockwell of the Times, the chief art critic, said, great art is always shocking. Well, you know, I don't know anybody that finds particularly shocking uh, the, the, the Iliad and the Odyssey or the, or the plays of Shakespeare or Michelangelo's uh, Moses or, or Michelangelo's David. Uh, the idea that great art is always shocking is simply rubbish. And then uh, Albert Albee, the playwright, said that, that uh, each play is an act of aggression against the status quo. I said too many, too many playwrights let the audience off the hook instead of slugging them in the face which is what you should be doing. You're a student of literature and, and of the history of Western thought. Who first gets off the line um, to épater um, les bourgeois, uh, scandalize or shock, uh, outrage uh, the bourgeois? Who first offers that as a guide to how to work? Well, I don't know. Maybe Mugy or Valerie or God knows who. But this is what they're doing. They are scandalizing ordinary folk. That's right. And they have no, no respect at all. Uh, for the values that, that have held civilization together for literally thousands of years. Maybe another culprit in setting this direction is Ezra Pond, with his famous maxim uh, to, quote, make it new. Yeah, well, that's that's coming close. Of course, you, you could make it new without making it obscene yes. uh, or, or, or outrageous, but uh, uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly an open invitation. And, of course, Stephen uh, 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 Gideon's claim that, that architects are geniuses who work like scientists and and for that reason no one has a right to an opinion on architecture uh, because un, unless they are trained in architecture uh, that's that's just pure rubbish and and uh, good old dr johnson put that plain he said i've got the right to criticize a table uh, that's badly made even though i can't make the table uh, 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 this is this is something that we can, we certainly can do because uh, or as Aristotle put it more extensively, uh, a, a householder who has to live in the house is in much better position to judge whether the house is effective and useful and, and a place uh, that you can live in happily than the architect who doesn't, who doesn't live anywhere near it, uh, which goes, it goes back to your Mies van der Rohe exercise where people get a, get a set of curtains that they don't like, or Frank Lloyd Wright's houses and he designed the furniture that was so damned uncomfortable that nobody could sit in it. Mm -hmm. Yet you admire Wright. Oh, uh, Wright, Wright's designs were just magnificent. If you take falling water, I don't think a more beautiful house has ever been designed. And no, I think it was a falling water that was 
uh, about to fall down. I learned yeah, that's the trouble with falling water. It lived up to its name much more quickly than anybody imagined because, again, of the arrogance of right. Uh, he did, he designed his design, uh, it seems to me, was flawless, a real masterpiece. But then when it came to the engineering, uh, he, he didn't know very much about the engineering, uh, and he didn't have enough rebar and, and, and steel in those cantilevered parapets to hold them together. Uh, and uh, E.J. Kaufman, who was the sponsor of that house, hired his own engineer who came up with the, the right specifications. And when when uh, when they were incorporated and Wright found out about it, he tore it all out and insisted on his own stupid, inadequate designs. And, of course, the parapets then fell apart. Fortunately, the, the public in... Uh, Pennsylvania has recognized this as a masterpiece it is of organic architecture, and they, they have spent millions of dollars of public money uh, to restore it and, and made it into, uh, into a museum. John, let me shift you back to Chicago for a moment. Uh, have you, in recent years, been in Chicago, and have you seen the Helmut Jahn uh, uh, building known as the Thompson uh, State of Illinois Center? No, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that. The, the last time I was in in, in Chicago, uh, the the Sears building had been built a few years earlier, and the Hancock building had been built, mm -hmm. and and you had uh, there is what you you know you might think of as indecent exposure. You can you can look at the building from the outside, and you can see all the trusses and everything else working uh, inside. But those 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 buildings they may not be very pretty. They can be ugly, uh, and they can be arbitrary, but they're not absurd because they they meet the functions of the owners. They meet the functions yeah. and, and the demands and the requirements of the people who work within them. The Hancock, uh, I think, is generally credited to be, in its own strong way, a significant design and a, an acceptable one, sure. Yes, I think it's acceptable. I don't think it's a great building. I don't think it's a very beautiful building, but it, it's certainly a sound a, a sound structure, and, and there's not a hint of absurdity about it. It's but the, the reason I ask about the Helmut Jahn-designed uh, State of Illinois building is that it uh, turned out to be grossly dysfunctional. It's a vast thing. Some people describe it has been described as um, uh, a spaceship that has landed. Uh, I, I can't do full justice to it, but it occupies a vast space in downtown Chicago, and it's supposed to be very serviceable for uh, thousands and thousands of people working for the state of Illinois. But they found when finally it was open, and this is a wonderful atrium, essentially a great inner space with a sort of a uh, a, uh, an opening at the top which fills it with light. It's really quite dramatic on the inside, though it looks a little odd on the outside, but it was almost totally dysfunctional. It, uh, the cooling system simply didn't work, so it was absolutely sweltering through the summer months and then completely, in, uh, completely frigid and disorganized and dysfunctional during the winter months, and they spent millions to try to get it uh, to simply be a habitable space once again. Have they succeeded? Well, supposedly, the building is still there and people work at it. But, it must be a uh, tremendous cost overrun to, tremendous, to, to utterly tremendous, it that way. Yeah. Uh, speaking of overrun, we have overrun our time. We're late for a batch of commercials. And uh, after that, directly back to John Silver. With this question, John, which I put to you even now, looking forward to your answer in a few minutes. And it's simply this. Uh, we're talking about the work of these iconic, overpaid, overindulged architects. We've named a few. We could name various others. But there are schools of architecture, and there are thousands of architects who get trained in those schools of architecture and practice that art or practice that mode of service every day. 
has this kind of stuff affected the work of less celebrated, uh, more run-of-the-mill architects? Uh, is our general building uh, operations these days in the Western world and in America and in American cities particularly, is it contaminated by this iconic excess or does good functional standard architecture still persist? I will reassert that question right after we and direct you back to John Silver, who's talking with us from the radio studio at, uh, what's the name of the station? WBUR, isn't it? WBUR at Boston uh, University. Which yes. is the station of the university of which you are the president emeritus. Um, well, I'm raising the basic question of what ordinary architecture is like these days. What do they teach in the in schools? And what sorts of uh, aspirations and ambitions and skills, for that matter, do the students come out with? Well, I, th I think it depends more on uh, on the clients. It's very it's very easy to overlook the function of the client. If you take, for example, the IAC headquarters in New York, that's uh, that's the headquarters of the Barry Dillard uh, Company. Uh, it's 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 a very beautiful building, and it's a highly functional building, with uh, horizontal floors and 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 these these wonderfully curved walls. That, that it makes it look sort of like a sailing ship as it's as it's at sitting there. I think it's a very beautiful building, but a very sensible building. Now, uh, the uh, New York Times uh, architecture critic Nikolai Orosov said, uh, "These easy, fluid forms are a marked departure for the complex, fragmented structures of Gary's youth. Rather than mining the rich new creative territory, Mr. Gary, now 78, seems to be holding back. That didn't have anything to do with it." What had to do with it is that Barry uh, was was spending his Barry Diller was spending his own money. And he probably said, "Frank, none of all that crazy flying steel." Yeah, he said, "You know, I want a nice building, but, but cut the nonsense." <laughs> right. <laughs> and and he had a responsibility to the stockholders, and also he had his own money invested. Now, as I try to point out in this book, one of the main reasons for this is not is not just to blame the architects, but it's to blame the the client. Who, who doesn't know anything about construction and who is not spending his own money uh, in museums, in universities, uh, and, uh, and uh, philharmonic societies, uh, museums, all of these people, uh, they, they are 501c3 corporations, tax-exempt, uh, and, and the money they're spending is not the money of the, of the people who run them. I think that, uh, you know, as a college president, uh, I was well aware of the financial limitations of Boston University, and when I spent a dollar, I, I, I felt about, about it as if it were my own dollar. And I think that's an attitude that the client has to have. And and the, the client shouldn't be flummoxed uh, by this, this high-flown language. Uh, for example, let me let me give you just, just one example of it. Uh, when, uh, when Daniel Liebeskind uh, designed the Jewish Museum in Berlin, he had slashes cut through the yeah. outside exterior wall, and he explained that this is these were pieces of Jewish culture in Berlin. Nobody, nobody could ever find any correlation between those slashes. Uh, and it was also places. supposed to represent uh, a breaking up of the uh, of the uh, Star of David. Well, uh, you can look all over that place, and you can't find six points that yeah. you can connect to make a Star of David, however distorted it might be. But when he came to building the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, uh, you have the same same slashes in the exterior of the building. And here's what Liebeskind now said about the slashes. He said, they are part of a, and I'm quoting, 
a crystal, a structure of organically prismatic forms that assert the privacy of participatory space and public choreography. Now, nobody, I don't believe, could possibly make sense out of that. That is sheer nonsense. My response would be hoo-ha. Yeah, and absolutely. <laughs> and and uh, uh, imagine a, a board of trustees suckering for that. Yeah. You know, why don't, why don't they t tell this man, you know, get lost. You're talking rubbish. Well, think of what passes for acceptable art, uh, particularly if it is, um, if it uh, trans, if it violates uh, and if it offends your senses. Think of what they've done in, uh, in England as well as in this country, playing with themes of, one has to say it directly, defecation and somehow a, a subject of and a basis for artistic construction. Yeah. It, it's, 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 it, you know, to say it's tragic may be a little bit overdone, but it's, uh, it's certainly, it, it's, it's certainly at the level of farce, and, uh, and, and but disgusting uh, farce, and, really and heart, heartbreaking farce, really. That's right, and and uh, uh, the, my encouragement came from when I, when I gave the talk that was developed into this book, uh, to the to the uh, Texas Society of, of uh, the, the Texas Association of the American Institute of Architects. There were about 4,000 architects at that at that meeting. It was obviously more architects than live in Texas, but it was it was a regional uh, attraction, I guess. Anyhow, uh, they gave me an hour in which to discuss these issues, uh, and at the end of it, with 4,000 people in the audience, uh, I was I was very very warmly received. Now afterward, about about a hundred uh, architects were mad as hell, and and thought I was you know just wrong in in every respect. But there were about 3,900 who thought I, I really had hit the nail on the head. And I've, I've had letters from several parts of the United States well, by me, architects I don't know who've said the same thing. Let me hereby testify that I think you've hit the nail on the head. And I'm very enthusiastic for this book, which is also, of course, necessarily uh, very well written, uh, very well illustrated, and uh, uh, not only critical and... Uh, and devastating in its critique, but it does it somehow in a good-hearted and uh, even amusing way. The title of the book, Architecture of the Absurd, by John Silver. It's published by Quantic Lane Press, which is a new imprint from Norton. And John, we pause right now, a full update on the news, and then we shall return. But now to the newsroom and Roger Bett. With, to begin with, a few words to our listeners. Uh, to begin with, uh, by all means, if you didn't catch on earlier, if you've joined us on the later side, go to our uh, blog site, miltsfile.com, to see some eight or ten pictures of the buildings that we've been talking about. Miltsfile.com will get you there instantly. It's also time to invite telephone calls and email. For phone calls, the number as ever is 591-7200, uh, area code 312, then 591-7200. And for email, wherever you are in the world, uh, or in the country, if you want to get to us the email, the address extension720 at tribune.com. Uh, John Silver, uh, I invite you now to go beyond mere architecture and put uh, these excrescences and this disturbance and this uh, regression or this decrepitude that we're talking about uh, in context of what's happening in the other arts, and then more broadly to relate the arts, architecture, and others to what's, what's happened in uh, our social order. Uh, to what degree is this kind of excess and this kind of idiocy uh, reflective 
of some deeper dysfunction or pathology in the very nature of Western civilization? Or is that taking it too seriously? Oh, no, I don't think it's taking it too seriously at all. I think uh, this, this movement, uh, as I try to indicate in my book, sort of began with the development of the theater of the absurd. Now, the theater of the absurd was a very serious effort by Beckett and Camus, uh, and they were responding to the kind of sense of utter loss and nihilism uh, that, that followed from the conclusion of the Second World War, uh, uh, as it was a consequence of the First World War. And, and that just g gave us time to reflect, and it was a deeply humanistic uh, effort uh, on the part of those authors, and, and I think extremely valuable. Uh, but then we, we had absurdism extending into other areas. For example, John Gage uh, wrote his four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Yeah. Now, when you try to pass that off as music, uh, you know, the lack of common sense and, and the sense of fraud begins to dominate. Uh, and uh, uh, then you had minimalism, and you had uh, 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 the 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 rigorous uh, uh, sort of again accidental creativity that was that was followed from the twelve tone program, where you where you pick notes and then you have to compose within the framework of those notes instead yeah. of having to uh, think this thing through. The great the, patron for that was Paul Frum, around the Paul the Frum Foundation. Yes, that's right, and he who was uh, who was the husband of a colleague of mine in the psychology department at the University of Chicago. Uh, and he, he sponsored he sponsored all kinds of music that nobody would ever want to listen to. Quite so. Uh, so the uh, uh, some of the music was absolutely brutal uh, to the instruments on which it was played. For example, in Tanglewood, I heard I heard one performance for the piano in which uh, the person was out there, you know, stroking the strings directly and leaving the hammers alone. Uh, he doing all kinds of damage as he scratched around on that on that piano. Well, n nobody is interested in, in that music. Uh, uh, Fromm uh, gave awards to musicians uh, whose only performance was a performance they had as a result of having won a, a Fromm award. Uh, I think I think the marketplace is really important there. You you have people like Verdi and and uh, Shakespeare and Puccini and others uh, who who understood that. that uh, they, they had to write something that people wanted to hear, otherwise they would starve to death. Well, now, what's happening in the arts must have some connection, organically or expressively, to what's happening in the larger society. I think that's what's, true. What's I the connection? That, I think that, uh, to, to a great extent, the kind of intellectual synthesis uh, in Western civilization that gave coherence and meaning to life uh, has eroded terribly. Uh, Christianity, obviously, no longer has the kind of influence that it once had, uh, and uh, you, you have the competition between uh, Christianity uh, th that we would recognize as a kind of uh, orthodox uh, position and the evangelicals who don't think anybody's a Christian unless they believe every word of the Bible is literally true, uh, and, and they can come up, obviously, when they follow the attack, they can come up with a lot of silly stuff because uh, it, is, it is so perfectly clear that you can't take as literal truth everything that's in the Bible, and, and you, you miss uh, the grandeur and the wisdom of the Bible uh, by this insistence on a literal interpretation. But it has its, it has its effect, and these people come up with the notion that therefore uh, there can't be any such thing as evolution. Well, uh, you know, when I was seven years old or eight years old, I remember uh, listening to the radio at night 
Uh, and uh, I was listening to this preacher fulminating against scientists because they talked about evolution. And, and I got up, and this is back in about 1931 or 32, 30, say, 34. I, I walked into my parents' bedroom. They were still awake. And I said, you know, I, can, you, can you explain this to me? I said, why are these people arguing about it? Uh, you know, if, if God created the world, couldn't he create it any way he pleased? Uh, if he wanted to do it evolutionarily, uh, why couldn't he? Well, you know, I think this is out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. Uh, I, I, I could figure out that that was a bogus a direction between science and religion when I was just a child, and I don't understand today how that how that fight between science and religion continues. But it it, it has its bad effect because uh, the, the people can find some some respect for reason and for for the power of the mind uh, and and the capacity of the human mind to comprehend the universe uh, if they take science seriously. But if they try to reject science and treat it as as if it's just a uh, uh, heresy, uh, they, they lose that possibility. And on the other hand, uh, the, the scientists need to understand that there are a lot of things that we cannot know scientifically, and there's a place for religion and for poetry and for literature uh, that gives us insight into human nature and insight into human motivation. All of that, I think, is very important. But in the university, I think one of the greatest problems that we have faced in the last, in the last 50 years is the imposition of ideologies in in, uh, uh, in in instead of the search for truth, uh, and therefore again, it seems to me the sciences are so important, because the yeah. scientists have to be kept are, are are actually kept honest, by the fact that nature uh, doesn't put up with with nonsense. But there is no such strength operating on the humanities or the social sciences, there, there and that's so, where that's where radicalism flourishes in yes, the American. You get, you, get, you get Marxists on the one hand, and and now that they're discredited. You get other versions of Marxism, uh, such as feminism uh, or, or ethnicity, uh, where, where you say uh, that the, the, the uh, access to truth depends what, upon what, your gender or depends upon your ethnic group. What did you do about that as president of Boston University? Well, I, I avoided hiring people who were ideologues and some, and some for truth. And some criticized you for that, said that you, you were not uh, allowing... Uh, the thousand flowers to bloom. You were, in fact, violating First Amendment guarantees that ought to obtain even in a private university. I put a, I put a stop to a lot of stinkweed. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the plenty of flowers bloomed. We had we had a glorious diversity in, in among the sciences and among the humanities. Uh, and and of course, it, it never was a time when Boston University didn't have Marxists. My predecessor was hiring every Marxist that got fired. Uh, during the McCarthy period, because uh, he thought this was his moral obligation. And you have that fellow who wrote the People's History of America. What's oh, Howard, Howard Zinn. Zinn that, yes. That's an abomination. Uh, is, and is he still on the faculty, or is he retired? Well, he's, he's retired. Uh, when, he, when he retired, uh, he, he said he got tired of teaching. Of course, he's a multimillionaire, and I suppose that was one of the reasons why, uh, as a Marxist, he felt that, that he might as well retire. He was doing so well without, without having to work. And he never worked very hard when he was on the faculty. He would he would give all A's or B's, uh, and he would he would pass a hat and tell the students, you know, if you prefer, you can just draw your your grade out of the hat, and it'll be either an A or a B. You know, I know, John, that you and I are listed rather close to one another on the sort of large roster of the board of advisors or whatever they call it for the National Association of Scholars. Uh, there are academics who are very concerned about the wrong turn that American universities have taken and uh, trying to do something about it. Yes, I, and I think it's very important to do something about it. 
but you see, we we have. Uh, it's just inevitable. You're going to have some feminists, and you're going to have some uh, people who who try to orient everything around ethnicity. Uh, but but they 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 are guilty of a great fallacy. When when women claim that they can know something that no man can know, that means that they have a transcendence. They can go beyond knowledge of, of women to tell us what the limitations of the of the male uh, mentality is. Uh, well, uh, how do they pay themselves this compliment and deny this power of transcendence to males? That's it, one. Of it the, makes no sense. That's one of the mysteries. Of which <laughs> yeah. There are many. But we're about to pause once again and then right on to the phones and to the email. So let me repeat to all who are listening. The phone number, 5917200. I see one line is available. For a while, they were all taken. If you hit the busy signal, however, uh, do certainly try again right after we say goodnight to a prior caller. But at the moment, uh, two lines are available, 5917200. And uh, email is available in infinite supply. Uh, the email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. Get your calls and email in. We'll be right with you after these and we go to the phones and to the email in just a moment. There are now a number of phone lines available. If you've been trying to reach us, make another quick try. Five nine one seven two double zero the number. And those who move quickly will likely get through. Five nine one seventy two hundred. Also, of course, email is available for those at some greater distance. That's extension seven twenty at tribune dot com. And I have before me an email from a regular listener in Sydney, Australia, uh, who uh, says the following. Uh, as usual, today's show is of great interest, and I thank him for that. And he goes on to say, Australia, too, has its abundance of truly absurd buildings. But what makes it a crime is that developers tear down beautiful Victorian, Edwardian, and Federation-style buildings to make room for these classless monstrosities. Our historical and cultural landscape is slowly being demolished. Uh, to my mind, this modern trend betrays the times. As opposed to the aesthetic parameters of past architecture, which serve to be functional and appear externally beautiful to the community, modern architecture is a selfish, self-gratifying self-promotion for the architect, and to heck with what the community thinks. That's why I loved visiting Paris with its eternal, timeless, neoclassic architecture. I plan to visit Chicago and Boston next year to see some US architecture up close. You can see some often uh, some awfully dysfunctional buildings in Chicago, and obviously, according to John Silver, lots of dysfunctional ones uh, in Boston and Cambridge. But John, your response to that email? Well, I, I tell you, if he'll get in touch with me when he gets to Boston, I'd, I'd love to go on a tour of Boston's buildings with him. I think it would be very interesting to get his reaction to some of the buildings that I admire and some of the buildings that I detest. I, I think that he would particularly enjoy. Uh, look at it, that status center, because uh, if, you, if you look at it, despite the fact that it had a $150 million cost overrun, it looks very cheap on the inside. And it reminded me of Dolly Parton's comment that it takes lots of money to look this cheap. Uh, it, uh, <laughs> uh, it, is, it is extraordinary. And uh, uh, one of the most encouraging things about the status center is that the MIT has filed suit against Frank Gehry uh, for uh, his, uh, his uh, mal malfunctions. Because the building leaks, state. is that it? Well, it's leaks, the foundation falling apart, uh, all kinds of all kinds of difficulties, and the the endangerment of people by ice and snow falling off mm -hmm. the building. No, but I I would I would say to our Australian friend that uh, when he's right side up, come see me, and I'll be glad to take him through Boston 
on a on an architectural tour. I think it would be great fun. Uh, I'm sure that uh, that invitation will be noted. Uh, and let me go to the phones now. Five nine one seven two double zero. Anything you want to say or ask about contemporary architecture, and whether you agree or disagree with the views expressed by our guest John Silver and echoed, to be sure, by the host of this program. Here is the first call. Hello, you're on the air. Hello, I'm Professor Rosenberg and, and uh, Vice President Silver. Uh, I am absolutely uh, struck by how what you were saying uh, while I was on hold uh, about academia. It, I'm a recent uh, graduate uh, of DePaul University and uh, with a degree in history, and um, I went right for that. Everything that you said was so resonant with what I, my experience there and the struggle that a lot of well-meaning people, like I can confess of that, to get through that experience to deal with, uh, as, you, as you put it, the, the ideologues uh, who are there. Uh, what, what, what ideology were the ideologues pushing in the history department? Well, actually, surprisingly, the history department was, I, I would say, nothing bad about them. It was more in the general education uh -huh. curricula. Uh, at the time that I was beginning at DePaul, my, my undergraduate education, we had Michael Eric Dyson uh, l lurking about the campus. And Michael Michael Eric Dyson. Yes. Just to say um, that name again. Yeah. Uh, uh, I had the great misfortune of taking a class with him, and uh, it, uh, the description given about um uh passing the hats and sort of just uh talking uh, out of pulling things out of the air not necessarily having a form to the to the, to the classroom not just sort of very pleased with his own voice not necessarily teaching or educating or sharing a valuable uh experience it it, it felt again like i was listening to someone spiel their ideology upon me as opposed to receiving an education and there were a number of, of special lecturers uh, and, and these, these sorts of individuals, sort of superstar academics. And it seemed like the school was putting an emphasis on that, as opposed to many of the hardworking and uh, very underappreciated individuals who were doing good scholarship, uh, you know, who were, who were well-versed in languages, who were well-versed in the sciences, who were languishing because they weren't necessarily writing books about bombast. I remember at the time, Dr. De I'm going to call him Doctor. He was a Reverend Dyson. Had written a book about black women and poetry, which had nothing to do with his area of study. And yet we were told this was, you know, uh, that this was important to his interdisciplinary, generalistic education. Uh, and again, what I can't tell you after taking that class, what I exactly walked away with yeah. in terms of knowledge. Let's let's pause for a moment and get some response to what you've said so far from John Silver. Well, you see, I, I think the, the important thing is to uh, keep very clearly in mind the distinction between ideology and the search for truth. The person who's searching for truth uh, doesn't know what the answer is going to be. He starts gathering data. He starts, starts looking at facts. He, he begins to develop arguments. And, and, he, and he, comes toward, he moves toward conclusions to which he's driven by the evidence and the argument. An ideologue, by contrast, knows exactly what his conclusions are before he ever starts, and he is very highly selective in the evidence that he uses so that he only selects the points uh, that support his ideology. Now, th that distinction is so clear uh, that you can, you can spot it anywhere. For example, in the English departments now, we have this deconstructionism, uh, which is such, a, such an absurdity 
uh, that that quote I gave of, of Liebeskind about about the crystal structure of organically prismatic forms asserting the primacy of participatory space and public choreography. That's a beautiful example of, of deconstructionism. It doesn't mean a damn thing. Uh, and uh, th these are these are people who have uh, suggested that the critic is superior to the literature. Uh, that the, the, the person who wants to talk about Shakespeare uh, creates Shakespeare by his interpretation of Shakespeare. He's not bound by the the, the, the text. Uh, the text has no, uh, no primacy. Uh, his interpretation of the text is primary rather than the text itself. Well, when you run into an English professor like that, the best thing to do is to save your money, go someplace <laughs> else, or if, no. they, if that's all they've got in the school, go to a different school. Well, I, 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 would, I would only say I, that when I uh, was, was in my undergraduate course, I had a professor named Dr. Gregory Kosowski who um, was exactly what you said. It, it, the, 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 he said he was often, he said that the, the search for truth, as, as you put it, that finding things, learn, learning in his experience, that he was often surprised. And he said that that was truly when learning takes place, that it's not knowing ahead of time, but that he was often shocked. And he often, he often was the subject of derision because of it, but he had a fantastic quote, which was, um, when people would hold them in contempt for this belief. He said, they hold me in contempt, but I think them beneath it. Sir, I feel we must uh, cut away because we're late for uh, an update on the news. Thank you so much for the call. And we'll be directly back to John Silver and to your calls and emails. Again, some lines available. We'd love to hear your direct judgments upon particular buildings that you find either satisfying and, uh, and uh, in proper proportion and in proper aspect, or which you find uh, to be disfigurements of the urban scene. Uh, your preferences, your aversions with regard to contemporary building. 591 is the number. 591 for email extension 720 at tribune.com and to the newsroom and Roger Betch. And our guest on an ISDN line from, uh, from Boston is John Silver the President Emeritus of Boston University and the author of uh, an amusing and an edifying uh, and finally a um, Jeremiah-like new book, uh, but it's a Jeremiah with uh, a good humor rather than with mere rage, titled Architecture of the Absurd, How Genius, in quotes, disfigured a practical art. And that is uh, just it's copiously illustrated as well as uh, excellently written, and it is just published by... Uh, What's the name of this imprint again? The Quantuck Press. The Quantuck Lane Press. Yeah, and it's distributed by Norton. Exactly. Five nine one seven two double zero is our number. You are the next caller. Good evening. Hi, my name is Jim, and I've been living in Chicago since 1991, and I just moved from Wrigleyville to Uptown in October, and I don't know, Milt, if you're familiar with the old Tattoo Factory at Montrose and Sheridan. I don't think so. Anyway, it was a it was a, a building from 1901 with some very significant terracotta, and it was tore down in October. And I called the landmark uh, division downtown Chicago, and they said there's nothing they could do about it. And they said that the, the terracotta was supposed to be salvaged to put into the Target that's going to be built there soon. Anyway, um, I have video I videotaped the whole destruction of the building from my seventh floor apartment here in Uptown. 
and I have video of them smashing the terracotta with the tractors. I was just wondering, is it even worth trying to do something with this? Or Well, there are people who are much concerned with preservation in town, and uh, there is a preservation council. Um, you could certainly um, inquire at the uh, one or another of the uh, architecture organizations in town, and they would tell you a good deal about that. Okay. Um, and another thing is uh, a guy pulled up in his van and took like about 50 pieces of this porcelain terracotta. And I, ha I took his license plate number down just because I, I thought it was just kind of interesting because how someone like that could just drive off with all this history and probably make a lot of money off it. I mean, is that legal for someone to drive up and, and buy the workers a case of beer so he had access to, to the rubble? Probably not. But I doubt that you'd get strong prosecution if you tried to get the police department on it. Because uh, there's a lot of great uh, terracotta work around here, but mm -hmm. this building was it was an old mall that yeah. probably had 15 units in it. Well, you know, this reflects, uh, John, what we uh, heard or rather read also from our correspondent and listener in Australia just a few minutes ago. That is, that as the new goes up, and much of it offensive new, uh, some of the quality things from earlier time are simply pulled down. And that, I think, is particularly important in Chicago because Louis Sullivan was was an absolute master of architecture, uh, and, and he flourished in the, uh, Chicago, did, did most of his work in Chicago, and some of his buildings are among the most beautiful of that, of that late Beaux-Arts style. Yes. It's almost all gone now. Uh, the uh, old Carson Peary Scott store still stands there, and, of course, um, Roosevelt University is in a great uh, Sullivan building, but there isn't much else left in town. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. It really is sad, because he was a great architect. Of course. He was worth noting, as I learned, though you and I knew each other many, many years ago when we both taught at Yale at the same time, um, I did not know that you were, your father was an architect and that you had a fair amount of, uh, of uh, unscheduled architectural training yourself. Yes, well, it, it just it just happened that way, but we didn't have an occasion to talk about it. No. Uh, you know, and uh, I didn't know very much about your biography, and you didn't know very much about mine, but we certainly... We were academics who passed through the night. Yeah, well, we, we really had a lot of fun designing that course, though. We did one course together, yes. And, uh, and one of the things that made me very sad was when President Grizzle came along and canceled a MAT program at, at Yale, because I thought I thought Yale had one of the most distinguished... Master of Arts in Teaching programs mm -hmm. anywhere in the country. And I thought the way they were developing it when they let young guys like us uh, make make our own uh, course and, and offer it to the students who wanted to be teachers, I thought it was just so imaginative and, and, and really glorious. We and, had uh, fun with it. I lingered at Yale for the following five or six years. You left shortly thereafter for the University of Texas. Yeah, I left there in, in the fall of 1955. We we worked together 54 years ago in 1954. <laughs> when I was an adolescent. Yeah, and I was a child. <laughs> but there we, we had a good time. We did indeed. Back to the phones. 591-7200, you are next on the air. Good evening. Hello, gentlemen. I wanted to air one of my architectural pet peeves. Uh, back to Paris. One mm -hmm. might be uh, enjoying the elegance of French architecture, walking down the Rue du Renard and one would stumble across the uh, National Museum of Modern Art. Or the Pompidou building. Right, yeah. which is the building built inside out. Yes. It's all the 
steel girders and the pipes, the ductwork on the outside, color-coded, you know, blue for air conditioning, green for water, etc. It, uh, it's an interesting idea, but it comes across aesthetically as a kind of technicolor oil refinery. Yes, it is a curious building. What do you think about it, John? I think it's terrible. I think it's, I think it very. It reminds me of, of Victoria's Secret, where where they're designing female clothes, where they wear the corset on the outside. Uh-huh. You know, it, it's just all turned around. It's it's indecent exposure, I think. Who did that one? Who's the architect? Uh, I think it's Peter Rogers or Richard Rogers Piano, and uh, another Italian gentleman. It's a group. Mm-hmm. There's something else. Uh, I wonder how either or both of you feel about this. Uh, the set of buildings called La Défense, way out there, and you see it through the Arc de Triomphe. Uh, that was quite controversial when it first went up. What do you know about those, John? I don't know anything about it, sorry to say. The great big massive buildings uh, out in that direction. Literally, you can view them through the Arc, but they're about five miles away. Well, uh, that, that's, that's wonderful that they were that far away. I, I suppose I have seen them because uh, in Paris, when I was there for the f- first time in 1959, I had, had no skyscrapers. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and now it's surrounded at some great distance uh, with, with skyscrapers. This, this was the beginning, the La Défense was the beginning of I that hope, uh, particular development. I, I, I hope they maintain the, the building codes for the, for the inner city, for the arrondissement. Yeah. I'd like, the, the I'd like if I could give an example of, of a, a kind of experimentation that I thought works. And if we go, if we turn our attention to London, you'll see a what used to be a uh, power plant now transformed into the Tate Modern with that elegant uh, footbridge across mm-hmm. the Thames. Yes. I like that one. Yes, sir. We thank you for the call. Thank you. Interesting uh, contribution. Let's go quickly to another on 591 7200. And you are on the air. Good evening. Hello, are you there? Uh, yes. Uh, wondering if you have any thoughts about uh, Santiago Calatrava. Uh, you talked a little bit about egoism. I assume that all of these guys at the top level have a certain amount of ego. But uh, Calatrava seems to me to do some good things. I'm not an expert. I'm just curious as to whether you uh, folks have any feelings. Well, I, I think he's one of the finest of the of the modern group. His transit center for the World Trade Center, I think it's it's it hasn't been built. It's it's a design, but it is it is a gorgeous design. I think it'll be very beautiful if it is built, and I hope it is built. But uh, I, I think you picked you picked one of the uh, truly genuine uh, architects of our time. He is an artist, but he's a practical artist who pays attention to the use of his of his constructions. And the needs of his clients uh, and their budgetary limitations. I think, I think uh, you you picked you picked uh, one of my my very favorite uh, architects that I admire the most. But he's um, recently designed um, a very very tall building, so in corkscrew shape, that is supposed to go up in Chicago uh, fairly soon. You know about that one? I have, I have not I have not seen the the building obviously, but I've seen pictures of yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it's a it's an interesting building, and uh, engineered properly, it can be quite functional. Is that where the ego comes in? Though that's a little extreme. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he he certainly uh, wants to wants to have an arresting building. People that look at and uh, look at it, and they talk about it, and they 
they they uh, then reflect publicly on his his creation, but I think I think he's done other works that are are, are really just more beautiful. But this is uh, this this uh, this building uh, is is certainly not a not a it, it doesn't fit into the architecture of the absurd. It 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 may it may not be the most beautiful building. Uh, you 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 have sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly in architecture, and then you have the absurd. And uh, I try to distinguish between uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, which which can certainly be differentiated, uh, and then keep them quite distinct uh, from the from the buildings that are simply absurd because they don't work and because they've ignored budgetary needs and and the physical needs. Uh, like keeping out water and things of that sort. John, let me tell you about uh, an architectural joke, in a way, that was worked in Chicago. And it can be seen by anybody on the skyline and uh, down Wacker Avenue. I don't even know the name of the building. They may have chosen not to give it a name because uh, everybody despises it. I watched it going up. You could see it as it was rising as you drove on Lakeshore Drive. And it was a long, tall uh, tower, a thin tower, but uh, not uh, particularly offensive. It seems it seemed to have some sort of um, uh, Beaux-Arts design uh, to it, if only in terms of light ornamentation, until they topped it off. And they topped it off with a what looks like a water tower. It's called various things. It's illuminated at night, uh, and it is simply an ugly excrescence on top of an otherwise not totally displeasing building. Uh, everyone, uh, we had... A hundred different uh, nicknames for it. A water tower was my choice, uh, and, or gas tank, and so on. And it's as if you kind of end a Baroque concerto with a burr. Uh, and uh, it's meant, really, to offend, to shock, and to disorient you. And there it stands. It won't, it won't go away. It will eventually ask to be taken down 300 years from now. Yeah, well, the architect should have quit while he was winning, and uh, unfortunately didn't. But... Uh, we have a building like that in Boston. Uh, it's it's a building that uh, is perfectly reasonable. It's it's not terribly exciting, but it's not offensive until you get to the top. And at the top, you have uh, a, a kind of dome uh, that, instead of being solid, is uh, simply a collection of of uh, spandrels of mm -hmm. uh, elements that come together. Uh, and uh, if you've ever seen, uh, or if you've ever uh, been to Hiroshima. Or seen pictures of it, you have that ruin in Hiroshima of that of that of that dome yeah. that is, that's been all yeah. burned out, and all you have are the structural members, and and there you have that thing sitting on top of the building, uh, which which is just offensive. It every association you have with it uh, is, is sort of uh, abhorrent. It's the same gag as who, what they did with this building in Chicago. It's meant as a gag in a way, I think. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. A pâté les bourgeois, once again. We pause a last round of commercials, then right back to John Silver and a few more calls. And directly back to John Silver and uh, directly back to the phones. Here's the next call. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg, thanks for another great show. Thank you, uh, sir. Dr. Dr. Silver, uh, it's uh, great to have a word with you. Um, I'm uh, in a master's degree program in historical archaeology, and so I'm very interested in use of space, and my undergrad minor was classical studies, so I was happy to hear someone mention Vitruvius. Um, and uh, I've always been fascinated with bad uh, with bad architecture on campuses, simply because you know it's especially obviously those with 
schools of architecture because it's like the cobbler's children going bare feet and and just horrid and depressing for everyone i think but um i i suppose that's that's a different question i won't ask that but um i was wondering what if you had any thoughts on the guggenheim i didn't hear that mentioned and that's always been i think problematic for me it's uh, yes it's neat i don't know what the space is like inside though well it is indeed mentioned in john silver's book please go ahead john you're talking about the Guggenheim Museum in New York? Yes. Well, I think that that, that, that building uh, is very striking to look at because it doesn't fit anything that's around it. But I think it's a terrible place to, to look at art because you have a ramp that just slowly spirals up and up and up to the top, uh, and it is so narrow that you, you can't see any large pictures. There's just not wall space to handle a large picture, and you couldn't stand back far enough uh, to enjoy a large picture, so it doesn't work well. And when gallery. you're standing there, one leg is higher than the other. Also, you're kind Always. of off, off balance looking at the picture. Yeah, you feel like you've been cut on a bias, and yes. it's it's a very unpleasant uh, sensation. Now, there's an addition that's been been put to the uh, to the uh, uh, the uh, Guggenheim that has actually introduced space uh, where you can show large large pictures, and I think it's a real improvement. And uh, uh, you have access to that 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 tower that is attached to it uh, at several different floor levels. So uh, it's it's improved by the addition that's been made. Uh, but I think that on the whole, it was again a tribute to uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's ego, uh, but not not to his real genius. Do I remember correctly, John, that it's also quite dysfunctional in terms of uh, maintenance? Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a. Pardon me. There's a, a string. There's a building. The I believe it's the the museum, the Indiana University Museum in Bloomington, that is I am pay. And there's this strange little. Uh, it's sort of at the back. It's just in an awkward position. Uh, it's positioned awkwardly on the building, and it's this uh, sort of a a wedge shaped uh, stairwalk, stairway stairwalk, and it's just so strange. It's visually striking, but I think unpleasant. So I've always had problems with that. So I, my sister's an architect, so I have to get you both. <laughs> Sir, uh, we thank you very much for the call. Let me work in one more quick call. Good evening, you're on the air. Uh, good evening. I've enjoyed your program a great deal. I Just knowing that you don't have much time, I think what I've enjoyed in, uh, in your program tonight is you're talking about different features of buildings that strike out to me uh, a responsive chord. I think a couple are uh, um, the Thurgood Marshall uh, Supreme Court office building in Washington, D.C. Uh, the foyer is just uh, striking in its proportional. Uh, yeah. They have some bamboo growing there. It's amazing. Uh, and we really should mention uh, Aero Cern and, and uh, the arch in uh, St. Louis. Let's go, to, let's go quickly back to John Silver on this. We've got only a minute left. John, go ahead, please. Yes, I'm, glad you, I'm glad you mentioned Saarinen because I think that arch uh, was, was a, 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 a ten-strike. My father, by the way, submitted a proposal for that, uh, uh, that gateway uh, to the west uh, at, uh, at, at the celebration of the anniversary of the founding of St. Louis, uh, of the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, it was 18-3, it was, uh, and it was uh, and, and 19, I guess it was 1953, uh, that that this was done, and he he submitted a proposal, 
uh, and it was a very interesting historical proposal, but it had none of the simplicity and none of the uh, eye-grabbing grandeur of that, that wonderful arch uh, that Surinan uh, designed. I think, I think that's, uh, you're, you're right to pick it out as, as, as one of our architectural wonders. I think it's marvelous. And that ends our inquiry for the evening. We're out of time, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. And just quickly, uh, let's tell all the world once again, the title of the new book by John Silver is Architect of the Absurd. And uh, we very much appreciate you joining us, and we are pleased to have had all of you listening. We'll be with you again tomorrow at 9. Until then, thanks for listening, and a most cordial good night.